traído a ti por la química. Brought to you by chemistry. Hi everyone and welcome to Brought to you by chemistry. What's brought to you by chemistry, I hear you ask? Complicated reactions? Complicated exams? Even more complicated romances? You know, the ones that most people wouldn't understand, but it's okay because you have blind faith that it will work this time. I mean, yes, but in this case, Brought to you by Chemistry is a podcast series from the Royal Society of Chemistry, so you see the branding there. My name is Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and in this series we are back and better than ever because we're taking a look at batteries, bringing together experts from inside and outside the world of chemistry to help us understand the ins, the outs, the ups, the downs, the positives and the negatives of all things battery. Um, could I please get you to introduce yourself? I'm going to go with Serena. Could I please get you to introduce yourself? Hello, uh, my name is Professor Serena Custon. I am the head of department of material science and engineering at the University of Sheffield, where I run a research team dedicated to investigating next generation of energy storage materials specifically for batteries. So it's really great to be with you today. Wonderful. I'm glad to have you here. And of course, second wonderful guest, please introduce yourself. Yes, I am. My name is Robert Llewellyn, and uh, I'm just coming up to the 50th anniversary of my expulsion from grammar school, which gives a slight distinction in our, our educational, the educational process that I went through from Serena's. I'm not a professor, um, uh, but I was quite a clever kid. I'm going to defend myself, but very, very annoying, which is why I don't blame the school for, uh, for uh, expelling me. I deserved it. But uh, so for the last... 12 years, I've been making a YouTube series called The Fully Charged Show about electric vehicles, battery technology, renewable energy, the energy transition we're going through. And for the previous 25 years to that, I was involved in various types of broadcast television, most specifically relevant to what we're talking about today, a, a show called Scrap Heap Challenge, only because many engineers now uh, who I've met uh, watched it when they were young, uh, which was a, a, an engineering challenge show. Let's leave it there. And I've done some science fiction nonsense as well. Wonderful. Now that we've got, you know, the the basic stuff out of the way, <laughs> both of you are going to lead me into the world of things that I know very little about, which is batteries. And, you know, people are listening to this podcast because they want to know about batteries. We're going to learn all about batteries. And, of course, my very first question to, I'm going to say, Professor Serena Cusson, what is a battery? It's a great question. Um a battery is typically made up of a positive cathode, you have a negative anode, and then between those two, you have an electrolyte. And when that cathode and anode are hooked up to an external circuit, that permits the flow of electrons. So what you have happening in your battery are a series of chemical reactions, and they cause a buildup of electrons at that negative anode. Now, the electrolyte stops those electrons from simply just moving across the battery to the cathode side. And that means that those electrons can instead move through that an external wire connecting the anode to the cathode and along the way they can perform their function. So on top of that, there's other stuff happening too. So in a lithium ion battery, for example, we would have the movement of lithium ions as well as electrons. So you'll know, you'll have heard processes like your battery is charging or discharging. Let's think about what that means. Yes, 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 please, definitely. Because we, we've jumped into anodes and cathodes yeah. and electrolytes. Electrolytes are what is in, you know, sports drinks and whatnot, right? So, <laughs> well, it's salts, yeah. So it's, it's similar in a battery. So okay. it allows that, that movement of those lithium ions, those charged particles uh, through, through that electrolyte. So if, if we think about charge... Um, you've got your positive electrode or your cathode. And what it does is it gives up some of its lithium ions. And those lithium ions then can move through the electrolyte to your negative anode. And um, so, for example, in, in current lithium ion batteries, that anode could be graphite. And during that process, that's when the battery is taking in and storing energy. So then when your battery is discharging, the lithium ions are moving back through the electrolyte into the cathode. And that is the energy then that's powering our battery. So in both cases where you have you know, a charge and discharge, 
you've got electrons flowing in the opposite direction to ions around that external circuit. So if the ions, like your lithium ions, stop moving through that electrolyte because, for example, your battery is completely discharged, then electrons can no longer move through that outer circuit, so you lose your power. So that effectively is how your battery will work. I know that I should know those words and that I should understand most of those words. I'm going to say that I do, right? I do get it. And I, I sort of understand it, but I'm going to jump to Robert right now. I mean, for someone like you, who's done all of these things, you know, tinkering, making, understanding, enjoying engineering and whatnot, getting expelled from school when you were younger. Why, why do you care so much about batteries? I mean, you agreed to come on a podcast about yes. batteries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think what we're seeing now, and this certainly emerged about, uh, 15 years ago with the sort of first generation of of, of uh, electric vehicles that use lithium-ion rechargeable batteries. Uh, you know, and the very early versions of those vehicles were, you know, extremely uh, rare and not terribly efficient and they were very expensive and they didn't work very well and there was, you know, all, all those things were there. But there was an emergence. And what I think is interesting, particularly in this case, is that that transformation came out of the the computer industry, not the automotive industry. The automotive industry, until really, I would say, two or three years ago, was 100% locked in, granite jaw, determined to keep on with combustion engines, no matter what anyone said or what any government said. And I think, finally, that granite jaw has got a crack in it, and they're starting to change their mind. But that aside, the, the, the emergence of rechargeable lithium-ion batteries was adopted by the computer industry and the small gadget industry, cameras, recorders, uh, cell phones, laptops, all those things. That's where it was initially adopted. And I mean, I think the history of that is quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I know Serena will know this, but it was in the, it was about the time I was expelled from school. You had a very clever man called Professor John Goodenough in Oxford, which is where I lived. I didn't know him. <laughs> and I'm sure he wouldn't have, he would, wouldn't have encouraged me to carry on being expelled from school. But he developed that. That's his team at Oxford University developed the first lithium-ion rechargeable batteries, which nobody wanted. No one was interested in, except a, a, about a, in about I think it was in early 1980s actually. Some uh, people from Sony, the Sony Corporation in Japan, came over and said, "You know those batteries that no one's interested in? <laughs> Can we have some?" And uh, the rest is is kind of history. So I think that's where it is. And the knock-on effect that I definitely didn't see. For instance, at the moment, I'm in my house, everything is running off batteries and solar panels. There's no, I haven't used mains electricity now for four days. Not one, one electron has come from the mains system because it's been sunny. Not what like that flex. all year round. What a flex. That is the nichest flex. I, the listeners of this podcast will appreciate that because that's a very niche. No, no single electron has come from outside my closed circuit. I, yeah. I am the 21st century off-grid man, <laughs> all right? But I'm definitely not off-grid because I like being on the grid. I definitely am a very keen proponent of the I'm grid. Pro -grid. Very important. I'm pro-grid. <laughs> pro please don't tell, say I'm anti-grid. I'm very pro-grid. Because I also sell electricity back into the grid, but I hadn't been, I've been using it all here recently, but uh, yes. But then, I'm, and also just to really highlight that, I can't do this in the winter when it's not sunny, you know. So I, there's, we've been getting a lot of solar recently. So that's really helped. I mean, you know, that, that journey that you've, you've come, come on um, from being suspended at school, um, which I feel is a really good jumping off point. I really think that everyone should have been. I think, no, Serena, they shouldn't. Hang on, I should step in here. You should, Serena. Serena you did a proper education. No, no Serena, I feel, as right. though, I feel as though at this point you'd be an emeritus professor, which I assume is the super professor. I don't know. I just learned words off Wikipedia if you'd been expelled. But, you know, based on what Robert's saying, and I guess for you more in, in general, like, how important are batteries for like a sustainable future? How can I get to the point where Robert is, where for the last four days, like I haven't used mains electricity? How can I be like that? I mean, I think they're vitally important. We are in the midst of a climate emergency, and I think staying the current course would be catastrophic. I think um, batteries are one of those energy storage technologies that could really enable a greener grid. 
it's a really huge, it's a hugely exciting time as we move towards a more electrified future, because the reality is that we are seeing effects and re very real evidence of climate change. And I think unlocking the potential that battery technologies have will have real impact in that particular example that Robert's talked about, where you're thinking about that transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources. So, you know, you've got energy storage technologies like batteries, which could play a key role in that decarbonizing of our energy system. If you imagine what, what Robert was talking about, that the energy grid as being that careful balance of matching supply with demand, you can definitely see the role that batteries have to play there. Because when you add renewable energy production into our energy system, we really start to face that challenge that Robert mentioned about wintertime. That the wind doesn't always blow. Unfortunately, in the UK, the sun does not always shine. So there's going to be those inherent peaks and troughs in our energy supply, in our renewable supply. Now, but in 2020, our renewable energy generation in the UK actually met over 40% of our electricity demand. So there is a really clear need for storing that energy and making sure that we have that necessary flexibility to be able to deliver that energy where and when it's needed. So I think that the batteries have a huge sort of opportunity here. There's lots of chemistries under that umbrella of batteries that could potentially play a role. Um, and I think that one of the areas that I'm speaking now is as a material scientist, but I really think that in terms of delivering a more sustainable future that you mentioned, that material science and chemistry has an enormous role to play here. I think if you look at a battery, you know, we talk, mentioned earlier about battery has, you know, the negative end, the positive end, you've got this electrolyte in the middle, then you've got the packaging it's within. Robert talked about the, the production of these things and how you, how you package them together. Any kind of technology like that sits at an interface of multiple research areas. And so you really need a commitment to collaboratively working across those areas. And by doing that, I think you can. And, and I think we are seeing more sustainable ways of making materials. We're making use of more earth abundant elements in our energy storage materials. And I think we're starting to think more deeply about the environmental impact that those materials might have. And I think as a researcher working in this field, I think it's extremely important challenge for all researchers working on, on energy storage to make sure that we think about any new materials that power our batteries. We take into consideration those wider economic and social science implications of any technology development. So we have to make sure that everything that we do is sustainable. And I think that means you can recognize then even the wider benefits of what you do, that any movement to a more sustainable future promotes human welfare and it advances our society as a whole. And I think all of those activities can further contribute to, to decarbonization efforts and, and, and that role that batteries will play in that. So, I mean, with that in mind, I mean, are first from your perspective and then Serena's, are 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 certain types of batteries better or worse for the environment, would you say? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I think anything that human beings make, particularly if they dig stuff up to make it, is has a, an impact. And you could argue that any of it is bad for, for society. And the one thing we've been doing for the last, say, 120, 125 years is extract oil and burn it. And I think we now understand that out of all the extraction industries, that's really quite a negative thing to do. Because however hard we've tried, it's really difficult to burn something twice. It's very easy to burn it once. But, um, you know, I've always asked people who are very pro fossil fuels and combustion. And so I say, show me a, a, a litre of recycled diesel and I'll buy a diesel car, you know, if we could use that again. And I think that's the critical difference. And we have to make sure that that is built in, which is very much as Serena was saying, that that is built in from the, from the get-go, if you like, although I hate that phrase, but that you that we design uh, the battery chemistry with uh, the materials that we use in it mm -hmm. to make it as easy as possible to then at the end of life, which I, I'm going to argue is 15 to 20 years, not five minutes, uh, at the end of life, we can use those materials again. And I think a, a critical point I always want to make is um, that the, the, the one of the key people behind the, uh, the, the emergence of the Tesla Motors company 
was a guy called J.B. Straubel, who I've met once, who's an extraordinary quiet man. He doesn't get in the news a lot. And he left Tesla a few years ago. He was absolutely instrumental in the development of their, their software, their battery systems, their drivetrains, which are still annoyingly, because I'm not a Tesla fanboy, even though I drive them annoyingly, they're 10 years ahead of anyone else. And it is annoying. And other people really need to catch up. But he, he left and he started a battery recycling company called uh, Redwood Materials in, in um, I think it's in Utah, in America. And his, at the moment, there aren't car batteries to recycle because they're lasting too long. But he's recycling billions of tons of old phones and laptops, which we've all thrown away without a second mm -hmm. thought. And it's so critically important. He can, he's extracting materials from those batteries and selling that material to Tesla who make batteries from it. You cannot do that with fossil fuels. You can do it with an engine, a combustion engine, you can melt it down and reuse that metal, but you can't do it with the fuel. And I think that's the critical difference. So yes, definitely there are, and I wouldn't want to name them. Uh, I think Serena will know, you know, the, be the good, the, the better and the worst environmental damaging, and not only environmentally damaging, ethically damaging, mm -hmm. where the materials come from, who extracts them, are they paid, how is the environment affected by that? All those things are really vitally important, but they're also changeable and often the the general press is five to ten years out of date in their biases and bigotries which is can be frustrating that things have changed and also i think one of the one of the few things that i feel confident does is one of the new battery technologies and again this would be serena would know way more about it but i've heard of so many different types of battery battery forms that are emerging and i think 99 percent of them are completely they're going to fail. They're not going to work. But one, one of them, you're going to go in 10 years time. We can't tell now. In 10 years time, they'll go, oh, it was that. God, I heard about that in 2007. I never knew that would actually happen. You know, one of them is going to work. And it's not impossible that we could have a transformative, higher density, lower weight, smaller, longer lasting battery, which doesn't have a lot of those contentious materials. Mm -hmm. And currently, we cannot do anything with combustion engines. We've taken them to the absolute limit of their reliability, their efficiency. There's nowhere else for them to go, 150 years of development. There's an enormous distance that we can still go with battery technology and the materials that's in it. I'll shut up. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I love the energy more than anything. Um, so, Professor Serena Cusson, could you, could you tell us? I mean, what's your perspective on this? From you know the chemistry, the materials, the research perspective, are are some batteries better or or worse for the environment? I really hope it's not AA batteries. They're my favourite. I think it's a great question. It's very broad, but really, really important. And if it's okay with you, I'll sort of think about this from safety recycling and ethical concerns are quite similar to, to what Robert was saying there ha you, you, you will have heard about safety issues around some batteries that have led in the past to things like product recalls of, of consumer goods and I think that really serves to highlight the need for us to really deeply consider our research into the safety of batteries so for example you know Robert mentioned there's lots of lots of potential battery chemistries out there one of them is uh, the solid state battery. Um, so at the moment, we cannot safely use lithium metal as an anode in a liquid electrolyte battery. Um, now, why does that matter? Well, it would be great to be able to do that because lithium is really light. So that would give us a lighter battery and it would be higher energy density. So that's great for your battery car range. But we face huge safety issues there because the buildup of lithium can cause the growth of something called lithium dendrites. These are like little whiskers. I don't know why I'm pointing at my face, but little whiskers of lithium. I mean, that yeah. can... <laughs> this, this is an audio medium. Um, I mean, it's, this isn't video. So I'll, I'll, it, I'll... it helped me. It helped me understand what whiskers are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so for people listening, um, imagine sort of a Hercule Poirot, if anyone used to watch ITV2. Uh, it's you know the little she's doing the little mustache, little mustachey whiskers yeah. like a cat um, to explain this. So please explain this feline concept. So you could you could imagine these these sort of whisker like buildups of lithium that can protrude through your battery cell, and what happens there is it can cause huge safety risks and the potential for fires. So there's a huge amount of ongoing research in that area of looking at safer alternatives. 
Um, looking at things like ceramics, which can replace those flammable liquid electrolytes, um, but still allow the movement of ions through those solids. So that's really quite exciting. A another area that, you know, in terms of, you know, are some better than others in, in terms of, of, of being better or worse for the environment, you've got to think about how you're actually going to transport these things as well. So we do face concerns when we think about transporting lithium-ion batteries because they can't be fully discharged and that can lead to considerable transport costs. So in that case, we've got the advent of things like sodium ion batteries, which are really very exciting because sodium ion batteries can be fully discharged and that avoids a danger of thermal runaway, which can be caused if you short circuit. And so that makes transport much, much more efficient. So there's that aspect as well of, of, of environmental concern. Robert's already touched on, on, on the recycling piece, which I completely agree with him. I think in terms of the environmental impact of end of life batteries, you know, we have this huge predicted growth of electric vehicles in the UK. And it's that represents a really significant challenge around waste management. And I think there's vital work to be done on recycling and reuse of batteries. And there are teams in the UK working to establish not just the technological framework, but also the legal and economic infrastructure that you need to have around that battery materials recycling piece. Um, and I think there's huge value in developing those kinds of methods where you harvest critical elements that are not earth abundant. So you might reuse them and reapply them. When you think about that a question of earth abundance, you know, there's three countries in the world account for 85% of global lithium production. And when you go to mine things like lithium, uh, it's often done through brine extraction, and that's really water intensive. And existing methods typically rely on solar evaporation from these really large salt flats to crystallize out other salts. And that process can take months or even years. So there's, there's opportunities there for new filtration techniques that are at quite early stages now, but that could reduce those processing times. Um, and I think we need to be implementing those kinds of recycling strategies. And, and as Robert said, consider second life scenarios for batteries that have already delivered on their primary function. And then going back to that awareness of ethical concerns around child labor, around the mining of elements like cobalt in batteries that, that, that's used very uh, widely, as well as building more responsible cobalt supply chains. I think this is another place where material science and engineering can play a huge role in terms of designing new materials that limit our reliance on those kinds of elements so that we can apply more sustainable earth abundant alternatives. So like, let me flip it. Um, and because you gave a most wonderful answer, I'm going to start with you. But Robert will probably have some opinions on this. I think everyone will have an opinion on this. What do you think, like right now, what would a world without batteries look like? Oh, wow. Okay, that's a really interesting <laughs> question. Because oh, there, there might not be, you know, uh, Robert, I hear you have a YouTube uh, series called Fully Charged. What happens if there's nothing to charge? I mean, yeah, okay. what, what would happen in a world without batteries? I think it's a great question. Um, and I suppose I'd go back historically and think, you know, it's over. It's amazing to think that over 100 years ago, you had people like Tesla, people like Edison, engaged in this huge contest, right? This fierce competition about distributed electricity grids and transmitting electricity over these really long distances. Could you imagine how they would find looking at today and how fascinating it would be to see that technology evolved beyond grid-based systems? So things like batteries have revolutionized the, the portable electronics industry. Um, you see huge benefits for off-grid communities that can now access crucial services like, like finance, like health, like the internet. Um, and I think very often, you know, if, if, we, if, we, if we look back to the discovery of things like lead acid batteries by Plante, that was the mid 19th century, you started to see batteries penetrate into transport and starting to power the lights and train carriages. Uh, and now today you see that electric vehicle revolution. So I think I, I, I would struggle to imagine what a world like battery without batteries would look like. Um, and I think, 
you know, we, we, we have this huge opportunity where, you know, you think about the pioneering work of Nobel Prize winners like John Goodenough, like, like Stan Whittingham, like Yoshino, who, who have revolutionized that, that portable industry just in my lifetime, and how batteries are now contributing to electric vehicles, that huge critical role they're going to play in that movement away from fossil fuels is just really exciting. It feels you've taken what is a not negative question, a quite difficult and maybe sad question and turned it into a huge positive, which <laughs> I like. And speaking of turning negatives into positives, batteries. Robert, what do you think a world without batteries would look like? I mean, it's, it's, it is hard to imagine because they have been around as long as combustion engines, effectively, in one form or another. I mean, I think they... There was a very early battery uh, on display at the um, Royal Institution, isn't there? Uh, uh, was that was it the Volta? It was basically the Voltic pile. pile, yeah. The Voltic pile. It's a load of bits of leather and zinc, and you know, and it, uh, uh, so that was. Oh, and I don't know when that was. That was a long time ago, a couple of hundred years ago. So it's hard to en envisage it, but I mean, I think there, uh, in fact, Nissan did an advert for the Nissan Leaf when it first came out, where everything was powered by combustion engines and so you know, there was someone in a cafe and they wanted to pay their bill so the person got the card reader but they had to start it and it has a little and a bit of smoke coming out and then there was a woman with a food mixer and that had a petrol engine driving it you know so it was joke and uh I think there's a like a dispensing machine, you know, uh, uh, putting a dollar in and getting a can of Coke out. One of those vending machine. There was a vending machine that had to start its engine to vend anything. So they were sort of describing a world without electricity, effectively, only uh, only combustion. But so I can't quite picture it. It's like, you know, if we had never developed combustion engines and we'd never extracted oil and burnt it, it the world would be very different. It might be worse. Or it might be better. I mean, you know, it's very hard to really imagine a world without batteries. We certainly couldn't do a lot of the things we do, we take for granted now. I mean, my laptop is on a, is running on a battery at the moment. So, you know, it's just, they're just a ubiquitous part of our, aren't they? They're part of our lives and we don't even notice. Even these little things, that's what I think is more freakish. Because I grew up with wire. Everything had to have a wire when I was a lad. <laughs> And I've got two little things in my ears that I've got, I think I've got batteries in because they work and they're electronic. I don't even know. The batteries have got to be pretty small. So it is hard to envisage that. So, I mean, we, we've gone, you've, you've both talked there about, you know, taking the past until to now. I mean, in terms of like what's happening now towards the future, uh, Professor Serena Cusson, can you please give us like an overview of your research into batteries? I mean, what's on the horizon? What's coming <laughs> next? What what what's the next thing that Robert can talk about on his YouTube channel, which is fully charged? If you want to subscribe on YouTube, well, I think very often you'll hear uh, battery researchers talking about things like energy density and power density of batteries. So I'm going to tell you what those things mean before I tell you what we're doing about them. So energy density tells you about how much energy your battery can store in a given mass or a given volume. And then power density is telling us about how quickly that device can then deliver that energy. So you can think about it like a race. If you were running a 100 meter race, you needed you need to deliver that power very, very quickly to accelerate, like think Usain Bolt here. So you very high power density. But if you want to run a marathon, you need to be able to maintain that energy over a really long time and have very high energy density. So you want to be Paula Radcliffe. So your energy density measures the ability that you have for how long you can store energy, whereas your power density is how quickly you can release it. So a lot of the research that we're doing at the moment is trying to optimize those kinds of characteristics in batteries, making sure that we can deliver batteries that have that long lifetime, that can deliver energy over, over a long uh, period of time, or if you want to accelerate, that can, that can deliver that acceleration. So the, we're also trying to do that in a way that, you know, going back to an awful lot of the conversation we've had up to now, that reduces our reliance on expensive elements and moves to sort of more cheaper, more sustainable alternatives. And of course, we want to pair that with smart engineering. Um, so we're trying to think about how we might significantly reduce the cost of our battery without limiting its lifetime or its energy density or its power density and do it in a safe way. So in terms of what my research is doing, I have, I have the huge privilege 
to lead a, a very large consortium of researchers through the UK's Faraday Institution. We're working on next generation cathode materials. So remember the cathode's the positive part of the battery. Um, and we're a, a project called FutureCat. Um, and it's a UK wide collaboration. It's absolutely, it's fantastic to get to work with so many people across so many different scientific and engineering fields, led out of the University of Sheffield. And we're working to deliver new routes to high performance cathodes. Cathode represents the most expensive part of your battery at the moment. So there's a huge amount of, the huge opportunity there for material science and chemistry. Um, we're also trying to develop ways in which you could prolong the performance and the lifetime of these bat battery cathodes, as well as discovering brand new cathode chemistries where we apply much more earth abundant elements for more sustainable batteries. I mean, I'm very charged up about this. I'm sorry, the battery puns. You said Usain Bolt, so I thought we were trying to, we were stacking up battery puns. Uh, sorry if we're not. I mean, Serena, what is stopping us from from getting further ahead? What's stopping us from having like a super powerful battery in the palm of one's hand? There's a lot of challenges in terms of delivering a brand new battery chemistry that can make that transformative step change. I think there are candidates on the horizon. So I think that things like solid state batteries, for example, you know, I mentioned earlier that at the moment we can't use lithium metal. If we could, that would see a significant improvement in energy densities and also in safety and, 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 and sort of making smaller batteries as well. Um, and I think that would that would see a significant step change. I think when we look at you talk about the incremental changes uh, in, in batteries to date. Um, I think when we look at some of these more um, uh, earth abundant alternatives. So I mentioned manganese as an example, moving from nickel to manganese. These have really, really exciting potentials. So let me explain why at the at the moment, some of our, our battery chemistries they rely on our metals um, giving up or receiving electrons during all of, all of their, their work in, in the battery. Um, so if we could move to a situation where it's not just our transition metals, but also other elements present in the battery are involved in those electron transfer reactions as well, it's increasing the, the capacity of our batteries or, or, you know, improving, potentially significantly improving our energy densities. So it's sort of thinking about things in a different way. Um, now, the, the challenge there, of course, is we're trying to do, um, we're trying to, 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 to step change here in terms of performance, but it does require a huge amount of fundamental research to understand how these processes work. And if we can understand them properly, then we can take full advantage of them. Okay, that that's made me really hopeful for for the future. And I think, you know, like we've mentioned, one of the big places you're going to see um, batteries being used, at least as a consumer, you know, it's going to be consumer vehicles. And when people think about that, you know, they think about electric cars. But you know, Robert, you know, you know, I've seen on your your YouTube. Uh, channel i'm not going to name it people should know it by now um but it's fully charged if you want to subscribe um you know you don't just have electric cars you have electric yeah. boats and you know there's something that i've been considering getting an electric bike you know there are electric yeah. bikes so for you i mean just just even looking at uh, uh vehicles for now like is there what what would the perfect battery be i mean what would you like to see in in that respect i mean right now you're putting it forward to professor serena cousins she might be able to make it happen so like yes. what 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 would the perfect battery look like i don't i mean i think the answer is there isn't a perfect battery because there are many roles that a battery can fulfill and therefore you want different technologies for different roles so for instance one of the things that is often overlooked by uh, by people who aren't in the the bubble of electric vehicles and the, and the technology surrounding that is that what well, you know for instance i had a, a the very first generation nissan leaf the, one, the very first production electric car built in 2010 in japan <laughs> and and i've replaced look, the look at the 
flex here. He's like, Serena, have you noticed this entire this entire thing? We've been chatting chemistry. He's been like, oh, so I actually had a, uh, I've met this person who worked at Tesla and who now now recycles at one time. Oh, you know, I had actually the first electric uh, leaf, you know, Nissan leaf when it first came out. What kind of first? What kind of the first? What kind of electric battery hipster are you? But yes, oh, no, well, I, tra- I did travel to this interview on an electric bike. There you go. Oh, there's there my you go. bit. Way ahead. Way <laughs> oh, ahead. Okay. Sorry, Robert. Continue. But sorry. No, what I was going to say is I've replaced the battery in that car recently, for the, um, which is not going to happen in all cars. This was a very, very early stage electric vehicle. It had multiple drawbacks. I mean, I, I usually use slightly worse language, but when it was brand new, the range wasn't impressive. And after 10 years of use, the range was slightly less impressive. So it was never particularly amazing, but it's now had a much bigger battery put in. And that is a clue. So it's had a much bigger capacity battery put in, same weight, same size, fitted in exactly the same slot. Took about 20 minutes to swap it. Very, very quick process. A lot of software problems. So now, because the software was fairly crude when it was made, so now when you charge it up overnight and you look at it in the morning, it says 168 miles range, and you literally drive 10 metres and it says 110 miles range. So it's kind of, it's adjusting in a very violent and aggressive way. But that said, the battery that was taken out is now running a a small workshop and office. It's just, it's been repackaged into a little box. It's got a control system on top, very simple bit of electronics and software that runs it. And it it operates as as the batteries do in my house. And that I've been to an apartment building in Paris that has about 40 Renault Zoe batteries old Renault Zoe batteries that, that basically back up the electricity in that building. So it's multiple apartments, lifts, garages with electric car chargers, and they can maintain their electricity flow at the minimum cost for the recipients. And more impressive than that is Antwerp football stadium that is powered partially by huge amount of solar panels on the roof of the of the auditor well i never know what to call a football pitch what's the thing that surrounds it the stands sorry on the roof of the stands loads of solar panels and i think it's hundreds literally hundreds of nissan leaf batteries repackaged and that that runs hugely off its own power source it's kind of a mini power station so the second life of those batteries is which serene did mention is much longer than we thought because if you make a battery and you put it in a car you then accelerate that car as hard as you can, which people who drive electric cars are want, are want to do occasionally. The strain you're putting on those batteries is phenomenal. You then put that battery in a house and you turn on your cooker. That's like you almost reversing at, at, at less than walking speed. That's the demand it's putting on that battery. It's a tiny proportion. Therefore, those batteries last for years and years in their second life role much you know the the range of the car was reduced but the actual capacity of the battery that came out of my nissan leaf is about 18 kilowatt hours well that'll run a house for pretty much a day you know that's a a really good you know it's not pointless it's not worthless it's worth a lot so there's that side of it i think the other critical thing i wanted to say is that if you are going to build a massive battery that backs up the grid I think at the moment that that is being done, for instance, Tesla's big battery in South Australia is a lithium ion batteries in big boxes. I mean, it's megawatt hours it can store. There's hundreds of them. And it might be possible that there's more suitable technology and battery chemistry to do that sort of heavy. It doesn't need to be transportable. It can weigh hundreds of tons. It doesn't matter because it's not going anywhere. So there's different types of batteries for different types of solution. That's the thing. And the other one that I've seen in Australia as well is, I think vanadium flow, I might have got the name yeah. wrong, but flow batteries. Uh, so all the cell towers, the remote cell towers in Australia that distribute the, the mobile phone signal have a small solar panel, not much, and a, a little flow battery in a box at the base of them. And that gives them 24-hour secure power so they can run without having to be connected to the grid because they're re- some of these are really isolated. They used to have diesel generators. Those needed constant maintenance. They've got rid of all those. They then had lithium-ion batteries, which they found were struggling with the heat. And vanadium flow batteries, the ones that I saw, made by a company called Redflow in Brisbane, they, they actually benefit. They get better if they're drained to 0% and if they're charged to 0%. They, they prefer, which are lithium-ion battery, you want to protect it from doing that. So it really suits the environment it's in. It doesn't mind, mind about hot and cold. It's not bothered about those things. It doesn't get affected by that. It lasts for 
decades. You know, we don't even know how long they'll last. It lasts a hell of a long time. You know, so, and it, it would be utterly unsuitable for a vehicle or a ship you know, or a car. <laughs> Completely useless there, but brilliant for that sort of grid backup. And lastly, the one thing I want to say is batteries have got hugely better since I had bought my Nissan Leaf as an early adopter in, in 2011, because the, the capacity and the energy density has improved enormously. And up until very recently, the cost has dropped precipitously. Now, that is being affected by, as we were hearing, uh, you know, commodity prices now. So there may be a bit of a kick up in the other direction. But I think long term, they're going to get cheaper. They're going to last longer. And the last thing I really want to say is it's very important to remember because cobalt, very, very contentious material, cobalt has been used for the last 50 years to refine oil. And no one talks about that. And large amounts of cobalt are needed for us to remove sulfur from diesel and petrol. And it, it's not recycled, that cobalt. <laughs> you know? So I just think it's worth always worth mentioning because the, the cobalt was used as a stick by the fossil fuel industry mm -hmm. to beat the battery the development of battery uh, technology and all the time they kept very quiet about their large usage of cobalt which is i think a a good example that there are some people who lobby for some companies that are less than scrupulous or honest do you That's mind right. if i if i pop in on that i think when you're thinking about a particular a technology for a particular application i think it's really crucial that you think about what you want but what you can have so you might like to have very large storage capacity at low cost. You'd like to be able to deploy it very widely. You'd like to be able to have some flexibility in how you deliver that, that it would cover sort of minutes to months. And so I think if you're going to think about how batteries sit within that space, you could see that, for example, something like a lithium ion battery would be in a prime position to deliver at timescales up to a day, like you were talking about, yeah. uh, whereas things like flow batteries are much more suitable for, for several days. So it's, it's thinking about which chemistry is right for the application that you want to use it for. And then just thinking about your, your point about second life, I think there's a big piece here about understanding second life and what's, what's possible in that second life. And we see it, there's a, a really huge number of challenges that, that scientists and engineers are facing at the moment around maximizing the lifetime of current lithium-ion batteries. So if you take into account, for example, um, a current lithium-ion battery technology, we'll, we call it NMC. So the N stands for nickel, the M stands for manganese, and the C stands for cobalt. Um, that cathode material, you can think of it like layers, like sheets of paper. And when we're charging a battery that has that kind of cathode, remember your lithium ions are moving through the electrolyte into those layers back and forth as you charge and discharge. So lithium, the lithium ions move back through the electrolyte during, during that discharge into that positive cathode, Wait, so happening going, hundreds of just times. Checking. So they're going like up and down through these layers. So if you each, think, like yeah, a lasagna. Like, like lasagna. a lasagna sheet, exactly. Yeah. So okay. think of a lasagna sheet and that those lithium ions moving in between those sheets of pasta and back again. And if you imagine that happening hundreds of times, and those layers could be, quite, you could think of them like sheets of paper or like, like sheets of pasta. They'll start to degrade over time. Like Robert was saying, if you're really driving that car and uh, really accelerating, really pushing it to its limits, you could even imagine those sheets starting to collapse a little bit. And that, of course, has significant effects on the capacity of your battery uh, with time. And so lots of people, especially here in the UK, are looking at how to mitigate those kinds of degradation processes. And again, if we can understand how those layers degrade or how battery capacity fades over time, that's where we start that pathway towards designing better batteries for the future. So when I think about like batteries of the future and future, like and the future, 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 which is very far in the future, English, strange language. Like, I, I don't think about just electric cars, electric bikes. I think about, like, planes, um, like electric planes. Robert, I mean, you've been flexing on us this entire, this entire conversation, uh, you know, from, from everything to going to Australia to being kicked out of school so you could live your life fun and early. Like, electric planes, do you reckon that they're going to be a thing? I'm very ashamed because I said, talked about my Nissan Leaf and I was rightly... Uh, 
teased about that and about my uh, all the other things. I, a couple of weeks ago, I flew in an electric plane for the first time. So I don't. I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to say that. Um, that. This was a long time ago, before he was a well-known international figure, uh, an actress that I very, very uh, knew from a distance. I didn't know her at all, but she came up to me at a party and she's, and she's, uh, you know, I, that, that doesn't happen to me often. An attractive young woman came up to me and said, oh, hello, Rob, it's lovely to see you, da, da, da. And then she said, oh, come and meet my husband. And I'm going to admit there was a slight disappointment in me, you know, that she was going to introduce me to her husband. Her husband was a man called Elon Musk. And I went up to this man and I shook his hand. And this is our entire conversation. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. That's it. That was, that was the full length of our conversation. But he was very busy. There was a lot of people there. Um, so I did fly an electric plane last the week before last. It was very windy. It was a very small plane. It's a Pipistrelle, two-seater, kind of a, tra- a training plane. Mass-produced. It's not a one-off uh, uh, prototype. It's made in, the, in Slovakia. Lightweight, two-seater electric aircraft with a 24-kilowatt-hour battery. can fly for about an hour very safely with a big margin for emergencies. Incredibly reliable, incredibly mechanically simple in comparison with a combustion-engined aircraft. And that's a thing I suppose general people outside of aviation have no idea about, and I certainly wouldn't have done without having it explained to me in depth. But you take an engine that is essentially the same as in a car, and you take it up to 10,000 or 15,000 feet, it won't work because there's no oxygen for it to burn in its carburetors. So it has to have incredible, extra, heavy, complex technology that forces air into the combustion chambers to, in order for it to actually operate. So a, a car engine would only probably work safely up to about 10,000 feet, anything above that, and you're really in trouble with it. So you have to do a lot of work to make a combustion engine operate at those temperatures. You can take an electric motor into outer space. It would still work. It can be in a vacuum. It doesn't matter. Not that I would suggest this pipistrelle can go as high as that. But uh, last week we went to see a vertical takeoff and landing electric aircraft that's going into production now. You know, in the next five years, I think you will be able to fly regularly between sort of 100 and 250 miles in purely electric aircraft. Uh, So, And it may take a bit longer to do, say, London to Paris. But certainly city centres to airports is where a lot of focus is going because that's I didn't even know, but that's a big previously. See, I'm doubting a lot of the sociological aspects of this. That in the past, a lot of business people needed to get from the business hub to the airport in the minimum time possible because they're so important. And actually now, fewer people are flying with business anyway. And also the whole flying thing is questionable. And also nobody works in offices anymore. So I think there's some arguments around there. But certainly there are technologies developing well, and I think autonomous as well, very critically important, or fully autonomous, uh, short haul flights. You two will definitely live long enough to see that as a regular normal thing. It won't even be unusual. You won't even comment on it. You just get in a little thing and it will fly you somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. Not that far, not that fast, not that high, but it will do it, certainly. So it's definitely happening. And that is 100% down to battery technology and improved battery technology. So vertical aerospace, we want to see, have developed their own battery technology in-house. I don't know what it is. It's secret. You know, they're not telling anyone what it is. But they're predicting that within, you know, the next five years, they'll be achieving 250 miles. There's also um, Electroflight. No, there's so many different companies that are doing it. I'm trying to remember the other one. There's another company uh, uh, whose name will come back to me in a moment, who are doing hydrogen fuel cells and batteries for longer haul flights. And they're experimenting with that just down the road from me. Um, it's so annoying when I can't remember the name of the company, but I will in a moment. Yeah, when they're just down the road from you, you don't remember. I, down the road, I remember, I have a Nando's. And I do quite like the idea that you're like, oh, yeah, for the two of you, these sorts of things, you know, flying and these battery-powered vertical takeoff and landing things, it's going to be completely normal. Bro, I'm broke. <laughs> Nothing is going to be normal for me like that. <laughs> So, Serena, the stuff that Robert's so enthusiastically <laughs> talking about, do you reckon that timescale sort of, are you hopeful? I, I mean, I think that there are certainly opportunities um, in the broader opportunities in transport for batteries to penetrate into, certainly. If we look at, again, you're thinking about uh, advancements in chemistry and, and material science and engineering to look at things like lightweight batteries. So yeah. things that are made up of, of elements like lithium and sulfur have great potential for applications in aerospace. Um, 
lithium sulfur batteries in particular sort of present real opportunities in terms of high energy densities, lighter weight, lower cost batteries, um, which could potentially be very interesting for aviation. LG chem batteries power some unmanned aircraft that have been developed by the Korean Aerospace Research Institute. Um, and there are um, adoption of lighter weight batteries in, in larger electric vehicles, such as buses and trucks. I'm with you, Alex, about, you know, that if, if we can make this something that's affordable uh, and looking to public transport opportunities where we can, we can electrify all of that, that's a huge opportunity. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, again, we've got to think about how we, how we solve some fundamental questions around the chemistry of some of these batteries to be able to unlock that sort of potential market penetration for, for aviation or, or sort of larger vehicles. Love it. I love the optimism. I love it. So, I mean, it's, I love everything about this. I'm in love, really, with batteries. <laughs> and this is going to continue through the rest of the series, I guarantee. So my final question, always the most difficult. So I'm going to start with Robert. Very briefly, very briefly, if you could have a listener take one thing away from this conversation, what would it be? Uh, uh, batteries in our lives will become normal and uh, uh, uninteresting, you know, which in a way is the, the best possible result. You know, the, 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 at the moment they're esoteric. So, you know, the fact that I have neighbours that literally come to my house to look at a box on the wall is weird. <laughs> And it's a battery, you know, and it doesn't do anything. It hasn't got pistons or shiny bits of brass that do interesting things. It doesn't make any noise. It's just completely silent box on the wall of a house. But they come and see it because they're intrigued by what it represents. And I think that's once that stops being weird, in a sense, like electric cars are becoming, you know, there's so my I, I was in quite a bad mood the other day because for a long time I was the I was special in my village. 28 houses in my village. I had an electric car. No one else did. I was special. I stood out. I was an elitist living in a bubble of elitist something or other. I can't remember what I'm accused of on Twitter. And now it's I, I'm common. I'm one of the commoners. There's now something like 19 electric cars in our village, which is insane how quickly that's happened. Uh, you know, the, the increase in, in, and then one of the, there's a guy on the corner, I'm not going to mention him, his name, who's very wealthy, who lives in a lovely old farmhouse, and he's got a Porsche Taycan, which is, cost three times more than our house when we bought our house. So, you like, know. like this summary is just turning into a flex. Look at this posh little village I live in. Oh, I used to be special, yeah. then everyone else got more. Everyone else too. has joined in, but also I've lowered the average property prices in our village by the state of our house and garden. So, you know, I'm proud of that. I'm going to go to Serena. What would be your one takeaway from, or what would you want people to take away from this episode? I think, you know, we, we talked a lot about, um, uh, sustainability earlier and so I would love people to take away the fact that we are as scientists and engineers committed to making sure that the new chemistries and materials that are emerging from our laboratories and that we're working with our industry partners with we are taking that sustainability challenge really really seriously but even going further beyond that you know the, the idea of sustainability is making sure that a future that we, we look to is, is fair and equitable. Um, and so making sure that this adoption of electric vehicles, there has to be strategies for, you know, how does on-street parking work? Make sure it's a coordinated effort so that there's, you know, the, the, the right number of charge points available to everybody, all parts of our society. Um, and I think that that kind of demand and that sort of movement to an electrified future is going to take some huge joined up thinking across sectors. You know, the scientific leadership is really important that we that we are committed to, to more sustainable chemistries for the future. Uh, but meeting all of those targets requires leadership from all parts of our society. And I think that's that's a challenge that we can all embrace. I'm not even going to say anything because that was a fantastic outro. Wonderful. Um, thank you both so, so much. That was phenomenal. Oh, I can stop sweating. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, of course, wonderful guest, could you please introduce yourself? Hello there, I'm Saiful Islam. I'm Professor of uh, Materials Science at, uh, in the Department of Materials at the University of Oxford. We, of course, here on this podcast, we're interested in batteries. We love batteries. Um, we're 
we're charged up for batteries. My puns are great and they're going to keep getting even better here and it's going to edit out the terrible ones. So I guess to begin with, could you very briefly tell me why are you so interested in batteries? Well, I suppose we all know that one of the greatest challenges in this century is um, low carbon, sustainable energy to help deal with uh, the challenges of um, climate change and also increasingly um, pollution, urban pollution. So why am I interested in batteries? Well, batteries are one of the technologies, not the only one, that can help to address um, low carbon energy. It's, um, uh, batteries are used in portable electronics, but increasingly they've been used in electric vehicles. And that's one way of reducing carbon emissions and help to deal with climate change. All right. So, so, so I am often told about batteries. Like, you know, people tell me the batteries are very interesting. Of course, you love batteries. Now, the battery that I always think about is my phone, right? And I'm told that it's a, a lithium ion battery. That's the battery that's in my phone. Can you please explain what a lithium ion battery is? Because people have said it too many times, and I'm sort of a bit scared at this point to ask. So we know that um, a battery is electrochemistry in action. Um, I view a battery a bit like a sandwich. You've got two <laughs> bread slices. Uh, the two bread slices are the electrodes. And in between those two bread slices, um, you need a good sandwich filling. So the, the, the meat or cheese, if you're vegetarian, is the electrolyte. And in a lithium ion battery, what's moving between the two electrodes are lithium ions. One of the electrodes is a lithium um, transition metal oxide, and the other electrode is graphite. So it's a lithium ion battery because the actual ions that are moving are lithium. You know what, when you say it like that and you, you sum it up like that, it feels like a silly question, but I know full well that myself and many other listeners of this podcast perhaps didn't know that. So thank you. Um, and you've also made me think about lunch, which is another thing. I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for knowledge, but also a sandwich at this point. Well, actually, I should add also, people might say, well, why lithium? Well, lithium is the third element of the periodic table. It's the lightest and smallest of metal ions. So um, we don't have, as yet, um, a, a hydrogen battery. That would be a fuel cell. We don't have a helium battery but we do use them in balloons. But a lithium is the lightest and smallest of metal, metal ions out there. And that's why it's got what is called a very high energy density. So you can stuff that sandwich, that electrochemical sandwich with lots of lithium, which makes it, means it can store a lot of energy in a small mass and a small volume. So it's like the most dense sandwich possible. It's like, like a, a plowman's exactly. lunch. Exactly, exactly. Like Okay. So that dense sandwich is in your, that's why it can go into your uh, portable mobile phone um, as a nice thin, thin battery. And um, obviously, we would love it to store even more, which comes onto my research, which we can talk about in a second. Well, well, I mean, you've teed it up very nicely. So apart from lunch and other food based analogies, what are you working on right now? Good question. Thank you. I thought it up myself. We know that we charge our mobile phone every night. Supposing we could develop a battery that you only have to charge maybe once every two weeks. I Could we increase the energy density, how much that battery can store? So one of the limitations of how much energy we can store is on the cathode side, the oxide side. Uh, which has a lower energy density than the graphite on the anode side. So my research, um, which has been funded by the Faraday Institution, is to develop new cathode materials that store more energy. And that's one of the big areas of research, not only in the UK, but around the world. Okay, so, I mean, you got to tell me, where, where, where are you right now? Am I going to have like a, a, micro, a micro SD card sized battery that can power my computer? Are we there yet? Currently, our conventional um, cathodes are layered oxides. The prototype was lithium cobalt oxide, which led to the Nobel Prize 
for the founder, the pioneer, which is John Goodenough, uh, which is long overdue, the oldest Nobel laureate at 97. Uh, and he got the Nobel Prize uh, three years ago with Stan Whittingham and Yoshino. That's the conventional one. The other conventional cathodes are lithium nickel manganese cobalt oxide called NMC. So that's currently in most electric vehicles, that NMC. What we're working on, what is called lithium rich oxide, trying to stuff more lithium into these layered oxides, but also very new structures called disordered rock salts. We all know the rock salt structure, the stuff that we sprinkle on our yeah, yeah, we all, we, we, we all know that. Again, yeah. the food-based analogies, is that is this what this is about? Well, I'll bring, in, I'll bring in a drink as well. So you can sprinkle on your chips, on your rice, but in my case, I use salt just before a tequila shot. Um, then we could, um, this disordered rock salts show very high energy density as well, but they're not made of sodium and chloride. They're made of lithium, manganese, oxygen and fluorine. So these oxyfluorides, and they're very exciting because they've got very high energy densities. You're, you're, you're obviously thinking about the future. You know, you're, you're really, really on it. Finger on the pulse there. What, what role do you think that batteries could play in like a truly renewable future? Because, you know, you mentioned electric vehicles and that's, that's one sort of way we're going down with a sustainable future. But when it comes to like bringing renewable energies and sort of really thinking about a green future, what role do batteries play? Yeah, um, that is uh, another really good question because as well as, um, as you say, electrification of transport and portable electronics, we've got increasing renewables. It's a really exciting time uh, for science and engineering in general. The growth of renewables, solar, wind, there could be more tidal, but when the wind isn't blowing, and the sun isn't shining, we do need energy storage. Uh, currently, large-scale energy storage doesn't tend to be batteries, but there's no reason why large-scale energy storage could be, could be batteries of some type. It's unlikely, although we never know, it's unlikely to be lithium-ion, because that's a bit costly. But there are big developments in sodium. So sodium-ion batteries, so sodium is below lithium in the periodic table, has very similar chemistry to lithium, but has the advantage of being much more abundant than lithium. So it would be lower cost and um, more sustainable. And there's thought that you could build these larger sodium ion batteries for renewable um, energy, for storing energy from there. So if you haven't heard about sodium ion batteries, you have now, um, but that, that could be another area. I like that. I like the mic drop. If you haven't heard about it, or well, you have now. All right. <laughs> so my final question, of course, a doozy. In, let's say, 64 years time, it's a very specific number, where do you think that we'll be? Where do you hope that we'll be when it comes to battery technology? Why 64 years? I don't know. Just picked a number. I mean, you were talking about rock salt and oh, sandwiches right. and all that earlier. You didn't think 2084, like 1984? No, no. Nope, nope. um, I, picked, I picked the number. You get to do the answer. Okay. Right? Well, I, I won't be alive to know what the batteries will look like. I can tell you, increase, by then, hydrogen will be an increasing energy vector. Um, again, for the listeners, hydrogen has the highest energy density per unit mass and volume. And there's always been talk of hydrogen fuel cells, but hydrogen has always been a problem for two main reasons. One, producing it costs energy. And if, you, if you're going to use energy to produce hydrogen, that could be carbon intensive. And the other challenge with hydrogen was storing it. How do you store it? Um, there's always that worry of explosive tanks uh, but I think in 64 years' time, that we'll see those two challenges being met. And we'll see more and more hydrogen fuel cell cars, but married, married with new advances in battery technologies as well. So there'll be fast charging batteries, 
hydrogen fuel cell cars. But who knows what the cars will be like in the future? They could be levitating on superconducting magnets. There could be superconductors out there. Yeah. I, I feel as though I, I chose 64 years time because you are ageless from your skin right now. So I assumed 64 years was the point where you'd be dead. Definitely. <laughs> well, I'm, hitting, I'm hitting a big number next year. The big six. Oh, oh what? Wow. Yep. Okay. Well, well done. Wow. That skincare regime. Anyway, well, toodle pip. I'm going to go eat Greg's. Bye. Lovely. Thanks a lot. Bye. Join us next time where we'll be asking the important question, in this day and age, what actually is the point of batteries anyway? That's all for this episode of Brought to You by Chemistry. It was produced by Hiran Joshi and Elizabeth Ratcliffe and presented by me, Alex Lathbridge.